Hello, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Thank you so much for joining us. So Phoebe, uh, I was wondering how you would feel if I showed up to our next podcast episode with hobbit hair. I don't know what hobbit hair looks like. What is hobbit hair? Oh, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's the hair that the hobbits wear. It's like a bowl cut. But the what's crucial is that I'm not a hobbit. Hmm. You know, would that would that be okay for me to wear my hair like a hobbit even though I am not of that breed of human? I think my principal objection to it would be that it is now June 2nd and hair salons have been closed in Toronto because of lockdown since November. So assuming this hobbit hair is a a new development and that you got this done professionally, I would just be very jealous that you had (laughs) access to such services. I've probably traumatized you just by bringing up like the idea of getting a haircut. I mean, I am tempted to ask women on the street who have like very obviously dyed hair, like in complicated ways to the root, like how, how did that happen? Where did you do this? Because it's the whole province. There's got to be an underground hair salon thing going on here. It's like a fight club, but for getting your hair done. Yeah. I know anecdotally, I have not partaken in this, but this did exist for dog grooming when that was closed. I am not as plugged into the circles about human grooming, but yeah, that would be my main, if I took offense, it would be at the mere thought that there are other people who can get their hair done professionally. But I think I see where you're going with this. Yeah, well, you know, that was my my awkward segue into our first topic, (laughs) um, which is is all about uh, fictionalized appropriation of hairstyles um, and how this plays into the contemporary entertainment landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am a great expert in the contemporary entertainment landscape. In, in the form of BritBox and nothing but BritBox. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say is like, what's going to happen though, is, is going to be a very special thing is that I'm going to talk about like a few recent TV shows, recent as in like last five years that I have in fact watched. Wow. So, you know what? I think that like something like four different things I've seen that are like recent American. No, one is Canadian, but whatever. Recent television are going to come up in this conversation. Amazing. I know. <laughs> so uh, the first show we're discussing is Shrill. Yes, which I understand to be a bait. It's a TV show, a comedy. It's based on Lindy West's book. Lindy West having been a writer at The Stranger in Seattle. Am I imagining this? Who had some kind of thing with Dan Savage where they fell out yeah. or something? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to sum this up. Um, so back in, this was this was before journalism took on its uh, current hall. Lindy West was working at The Stranger and Dan Savage, also longtime Stranger. I think he might be the publisher now. He's been there forever. He writes the Savage Love column. He said or did something that was perceived by Lindy West as fat phobic. Lindy is herself a, she's like a fat activist. She's, um, yeah, so she writes about that a lot. And she wrote a piece sort of calling out Dan for his fat phobia, calling out Dan Savage. And uh, there was this sort of big 
drama at the paper, uh, The Stranger of Seattle's Alternative Weekly, if you don't know. But also, it was an interesting example of how journalism used to function. Like when reporters had beefs with each other, they would write about it instead of trying to sabotage each other's careers on Twitter. So this, um, mm-hmm. I can't remember when this took place, but... But it definitely, like, it as I... Okay, so this I do know about, not really the show, but I think, like, they then sort of got along and it kind of went okay and Dan Savage has sort of since been more like sensitive or tentative or however you want to put it in his answers to advice seekers on such topics so maybe it just went kind of fine like maybe this was not actually a big deal yeah I don't think it really was and you know it's now become sort of I think Loosely, although um, I've I've seen the first season of Shrill, and um, as far as I can tell, it it follows the trajectory of Lindy West's actual life um, closely, although you know with dramatic flair. So yeah, the you know this this happens in the show, and it's it actually um, it spurs the Lindy West character, whose name is Annie, to strike out on her own you know, and take more risks in her writing and so on and so forth. Um, but this was the first season of Shrill, which I have seen, and I enjoyed. I thought it was good. It doesn't, in the first season, lean so hard into the sort of scoldy, preachy, uh, awokened tone that is typical of a lot of television these days, where you feel like you're watching a sort of an after-school special. Mm-hmm. Um, but a clip recently surfaced... BBC Three shared it on Twitter. It must be a BBC channel. I'm going to go yeah, with. Um, I, would, I would guess they're airing it in the UK, um, whereas, you know, it's on Hulu here in the US. And Canada has to try to try and fail to watch it in surreptitious ways. So Canada has watched <laughs> the trailer of Speaking for Canada. We've, we've watched the trailer for season one and the trailer for season three as preparation to try to make sense of who the characters at least are <laughs> and been on the Wikipedia <laughs> Definitely okay, some good. Well, you know, I say you've done your homework. You've I think done your so. homework pretty well. Um, so this promo clip for the third season was posted. The word yikes with the word yikes. With the word yikes. And I don't think I don't think it was an ironic yikes. I oh, think no. the yikes was meant in solidarity. Oh definitely. Because you, you know that it was you know that it was solidarity because it was coming from the channel showing it. From the like the official account of the channel showing it. So it wouldn't have been commentary in a snarky way on the thing. It was Unless like... they were really playing like a <laughs> <Yeah>. subtle, <laughs> subtle snarky game. But um, because this clip sort of defies description, I'm just going to play it. It lasts about a minute and 20 seconds. And uh, yeah, so here we go. Uh, this is a scene in which the first woman whose voice you'll hear is, uh, for background, a black lesbian hairdresser. Everybody else in this scene is white. So yeah, with first time clients, I like to talk through the kind of thing you're thinking, where you want to go yeah. with your hair. I brought some inspiration. This is what I'm thinking. Okay. Well, I mean, this is Bob Marley. Didn't know who he was. Okay. But, but you want to dreadlocks like Bob Marley? Yeah, I think I could like really pull that off. Don't you think I can pull it off? I don't. Um, but it's not really about that. Don't know if you've ever heard of the term cultural appropriation before. Oh, I love culture. I went to Berlin once and all my friends there had dreadlocks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure they did. Um, okay, if I were to wear my hair in dreadlocks and I went into work, say in an office, 
I would get told to wear my hair straight to look more professional. That would be really cute. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, you're not getting it. Um, let's just not do this. I'm going to ask you to leave. Wait, what? Why? Um, I tried to explain, but you weren't listening, so let's just end this now. What is happening? Oh, it's nothing personal. It's just that we hate you here. Bye, Sienna. Come on. Thanks so much for coming Are you serious? In. Absolutely. Please hurry up. I just made food and you're keeping me from eating it. Let's go. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Hi! Oh, you should just leave. She's not going to do your hair. Okay. There's a lot there. There is so much there. So one thing that's not obvious from the audio, um, which thank you, Kat, for playing it, because um, for our listeners, but also for me, who had like forgotten <laughs> some of the funny aspects of this, uh, the woman who comes in to get the dreadlocks is like sort of a, I guess, ditzy blonde type. Is yeah, that like the kind a, of... a 20 year old white woman, um, you know, who would be into festival culture? Perhaps something like that. But so she brings in as an inspo photo, a magazine cutout of Bob Marley. Yes. Now, <laughs> we may disagree on this because I thought that that part of it, like that very specific part of this sketch was pretty funny simply because I think it points to something like not at all like culture wars and just simply like the tendency of people and I include myself in this to like some hairstyle and like how hair looks on somebody and bring in a photo I mean yes more likely in this day and age like you were pointing out like a digital photo but fine you know of somebody like I'll, I'll bring in like let's say I like bring in a photo of Natalie Portman and it's like and then I go to get like a $40 haircut. I'm like, please make me Natalie Portman for 40 Canadian dollars. And it's like, sure. Yeah, that's going to happen. Um, but you know, the humor you generally and so forth. So I thought there was something kind of like potentially just like absurdist humor. Oh, yeah, there was the potential there. It's just unfortunate. And then it doesn't, but it doesn't go there. Uh, clearly. No, I mean, it went we somewhere. It went somewhere entirely else. Because I would have been happy with that, like, because that would have been funny, because it would have been so ridiculous, because this, you know, this, it was not like, oh, it happened to be, like, you know, a black woman who she brought a photo of. No, like, this is Bob Marley. <laughs> it just does not look anything, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it could have been what could have been, but what wasn't, what was instead? Well, uh, yeah, what do we make of that? Oh, gosh. Well, okay, the... One thing about this clip that bothered me right off the bat is there are two things there are two things in it that would never ever happen in 2021. Okay. One is a 20-year-old woman coming into a salon with a paper page torn out of a magazine to was, show. That was to be silly. That was I to know. be silly. The other is in 2021, in the Pacific Northwest, which is the region in which this show takes place. This young black lesbian woman going to work in an office would never in a million years be told that she had to straighten her hair to look more professional. That is okay. just not... Quick question. What if she had lived somewhere else and was referring to some other... Here is where I've landed on this, and um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little ranty about it because once I started looking into this, it, it just started making me really frustrated that... This is in conversations about cultural appropriation. 
this always comes up, the specter of the, the black woman being punished for wearing her hair in a natural way while white women are celebrated for it. And people always bring up Bo Derek um, as though that was like recent and not 40 years ago. So I do think that that was a societal issue. It speaks to something that was definitely a problem. The thing is, it's been a problem, a recognized problem that activists have been working to address over the course of decades. Um, one of the most prominent policies surrounding natural black hairstyles that I found and that is mentioned frequently in, um, in coverage of this stuff is from a historically black, I believe, business school. And it was created in 20, I'm sorry, 2001. Okay, so this has been an issue for 20 years that people have been agitating against. And it has been a successfully addressed issue. The norms have been shifted now so that people widely agree that it's not okay to stigmatize natural black hairstyles in this way, to, to, to say that they're inappropriate for work, let alone to celebrate a white person coming in wearing the same thing. Um, this is a place where the norm has been successfully changed. Progress has been made. And this idea that it hasn't been, it, I think it's an example of the left refusing to like take the win, um, you know, to the detriment of accomplishing more and better things because mm. it's been such a, an easy wedge issue for so long. Okay. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth right now. Um, you know, because why not? <laughs> it's a podcast. So if not here where I agree and disagree, I guess, is where I would stand on this. I think if you're looking at specifically like legal cases or whatever, I it, it does seem like maybe this is sort of starting to go by the wayside. But I think the professional norm of straightened hair for Black women to get their hair to look what would be, so this is where it gets complicated and that's going to be like, I'm going to, there's like, my mouth has like 50 different sides. It's going to speak from that. Okay. <laughs> so in theory, a white woman looks professional if she just washes and goes. What complicates this for me is this is a white Ashkenazi Jewish woman who, you know, I know some women of my background have, stick straight white blonde hair naturally. And I once was on a subway car with like a large Hasidic family and they all did. I, I, I'm aware of this. However, I don't. If I were to show up somewhere, not so much anymore because like Canada has done or pregnancy or something have done weird things with my hair. But in my 20s or teens, if I were to just wash and go, my hair would have looked as unprofessional as you know like so i like it this is not a it doesn't totally break down by race and a lot of white women this was something i was sort of startled to learn when i went to college a lot of white women straighten their hair and i think it is also often or at least did in whatever 2004 <laughs> whatever this was but this and and also I was I remember being really shocked to learn that a lot of Japanese women straightened their hair because I had just naively assumed that they had naturally straight hair, but they some do some don't. And anyway, the point is there's a lot of this going on. It's not like the idea that that having 
naturally textured hair totally falls along racial lines, I think is going to kind of skew things. But I, I think it certainly is racialized in the sense that like, you know, the sort of like a very academic way of putting it would be like anti-blackness fits, you know, figures into all of it and that it all, it's all on some level about that. Although I think I don't entirely buy into that line of thought. Can I jump into this for just a second? I think that it's, you know, that there is a racial component to this, but as demonstrated by the fact that this historically black business school instituted this policy and, you know, it was a black dean who said, I know that this is unpopular, but I've found that it is important to our students, you know, when it comes to job placements. I think certainly there is a certain amount of enforcement coming from Black adults of previous generations who have different Mm -hmm. ideas about how kempt hair should be in order to be considered professionally appropriate. And I do think, you know, there's a racial component to that. But I also think that there's just this component of the country and like the aesthetic having moved in a slightly more casual direction so that it's, you know, there's a a wider range of things, not just hair, but things like tattoos or, or men having longer hair. Um, It's just not quite as strict anymore when it comes to what Mm -hmm. the norms are. I think it probably depends a lot on which industry, but I think on the whole, like I definitely remember thinking when I graduated from college that I needed to have like a suit which now just seems so ridiculous. <laughs> like when would a suit ever come up? And I mean, even before the pandemic, even not working from home, I've not had reason to wear a suit. Um, I mean, I think, so what, what I was going to say though, is like, so from the one part of my mouth is that I do think there is a thing though, where specifically like having natural black hair is to this day in certain contexts in many contexts, stigmatized, whether that stigmatization is reinforced, you know, within the black community or not, whatever, in a way, like, I think it exists, this, this exists. And, you know, and also, so that I don't think has totally changed. And also, I think like, nothing happens, like, it's not like when cultural change happens, like a switch is flipped, right? So like, if in 2015, this was an active issue, it's unlikely that in 2021, it's just completely disappeared from the landscape. However, okay, I'm going to talk from the other side of my mouth now, which is that it, it does seem like one of these things where even if society hasn't become equally whatever accepting of all hair types, um, which is something I could attest to and, you know, so be it. That's that's something, you know, work in progress for society, whatever. It definitely is moving in that direction and there's something about this comedy choosing that as its lesson that feels like it's talking to an audience. What is the point? Like, what is the audience even meant to get out of this? Because I think that that's, that's key here because like, it's not really imparting a lesson. The assumed person watching it, it would never be that girl, you know? And that's like, so it's not actually, there's no tension because it's like talking to people who already get that there's a taboo about getting dreadlocks if you're white because it's supposed to be that you're whatever, you know, the whole thing, like the Bo Derek and all of this, like, or, or some Jenner who I think apparently also had some kind of hairstyle at one point. The point is, who is this even talking to? Like, who is who would be challenged by this in some way? And it's not actually like, it's it's more sort of like, 
team signaling in the culture wars, then it's like teaching a lesson, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah. So I have thoughts about that. Um, The one thing I want to say before I jump onto that is that I think that the societal shift surrounding this issue is more apparent um, than you might be giving it credit for. And the reason I say this is because whenever this comes up, somebody inevitably does say, when was the last time this actually happened? You know, that a black person was like told that they had to straighten their hair to look professional. And people always send the same handful of links. It'll be a national news story from like People Magazine about- Are any of the people participating black women or is it just like speculation from people- and I include myself in this group who are not black women. I will admit that I have not been scrutinizing the avatars of the the people sure. sending these replies yeah. um, to figure that out. But a cursory glance seems like it's mostly white allies. Um, and they always send the same articles. Well, there's one that's about a lawsuit that was brought in like 2013 in Alabama um, against a woman's employer because it required her to straighten her hair for work. So, I mean, 2013, obviously, in the Deep South, like... I don't know that I think that illustrates something. But what's more interesting to me is that any recent articles about this tend to become national news stories and they tend to be framed as idiot racist sends beautiful, blameless child home for having inappropriate hair. And like, isn't this outrageous? The the framing is very much bent towards a, a perception that the audience is going to think that this is not okay. And I think that that's the crucial thing that the majority view at this point is, no, that's racist. You don't do that anymore. I guess. I mean, I I also think, though, that if you're living it, the fact that a bunch of people on Twitter or, you know, in media or otherwise plugged into this stuff, scoffing or sneering or being righteously angry or however you want to put it, isn't necessarily tremendous support. I'm also, so I'm thinking not just of like, the things where somebody at work or at school is um, told to straighten their hair, but also like the apparently still active question of teenage girls wearing perceived of as skimpy outfits to school because like they had the audacity to like develop and then suddenly a shirt is tighter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there was just some story that was like, um, <laughs> very, it seemed extremely clickbait in the times where it was about like it was illustrated by with side by side photos. Oh, they of photoshopped a, the yearbook. Yeah, yeah. Of a, a blonde, I think, fifteen year old girl with like the cleavage and then with the cleavage with a bar over it. And it was like if the whole point was to te- to make it so that people aren't looking at the oh God, this is there's a whole Seinfeld literally about the question of a fifteen year old girl's cleavage because um I forget if it's Jerry or George who leers at it. But in any case, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, even the Times, even the noble New York Times, not above, I think, getting a click or two from that. But the point is, I think that if you are a teenager, and you're told to cover your cleavage, or having your cleavage photoshopped out, or being told to straighten your hair, or whatever it is, and this is actually happening it's probably pretty upsetting, even if you are on the right side of the culture wars. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have no I have no doubt of that. You know, none of this is to discount the feelings of the, you know, the kids, particularly, who are 
experiencing stuff like this at school. Um, there was this one really horrible story about, um, I think, a referee at a wrestling match cutting a player's hair, which, I mean, the idea of having my hair forcibly cut is horrifying to me. So, yes, I feel very strongly sympathetic towards that kid um, and towards all of the kids who are, you know, who are made to feel ashamed of something that's not their fault. But I do think that the, the general norm has shifted in the direction of considering this unacceptable. And I think that's a good thing, you know, and that it's, it's something that, um, you know, should be celebrated and then perhaps set aside so that, uh, so that the cultural appropriation activists can move on to a more fruitful topic. But the, the thing that, um, I wanted to jump back into is this question of who is the audience for this? Because the people who watch this show are demographically probably closest to the girl sitting in the chair asking for the dreadlocks, the, you know, the clueless racist idiot. And I do think that the, the point of this you know, the, the average viewer is the bad white girl. So you watch this show to feel both guilty, but superior at the same time, because as much as you recognize yourself demographically in the girl who's sitting in the chair asking for dreadlocks, you, the viewer of Shrill, are enlightened enough that you would never, and you can laugh at this, you know, you can recognize the humor mm-hmm. and distance yourself from it. But maybe it's kind of nervous laughter, because because what if you're doing something just as racist and you don't know? Mm. It could be. I mean, I almost feel like it It doesn't actually, like part of the issue is that it produces no laughter because it's just too obvious for the reason you said that this is kind of an issue that has come and gone to some extent, at least in the, certainly at least in the world of the show, as I understand it, like sort of liberal pockets where people are very, you're sort of young and up to date on such things, except here's a caveat. This character who cut out a picture from a magazine is maybe the least online person in the world. Yes. Of, of her generation, yeah. at least. And maybe that's the issue. That's maybe the... that explains the where magazine. Did she, where did she get this magazine? Did she go and like rip it out in a library? <laughs> She's like, I went to the congressional archives and ripped this maybe picture. Maybe she just, this would be the best segue to talking about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but because it is about somebody who was literally like in a sort of, I forget if it was a basement or how, wherever she was in some kind of, she was trapped oh, by yeah. a cult leader. But I really do want to, well, I want to finish up with this and also, yeah, Kim's convenience. But yes. Yeah. So yes. preview of coming attractions. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. Ellie Kemper and the unbreakable we Kim are. Schmidt a little bit. Okay. So continue. Um, Kim's convenience. This relates. Kim's convenience. It does relate. So basically, Shrill falls into this comedy category. We talked ages ago on the Blogging Heads version of Feminine Chaos about Nanette, um, Hannah Gadsby's Netflix show. That may have Um, been one of our first episodes. Yes, it it, it may have even been the very first. I don't remember. First or second, I think. Um, And that was this kind of anti-comedy rant about how problematic the very concept of comedy is and that it's marginalized people um, who are being self-deprecating if they want their audiences who are not necessarily marginalized people or marginalized in different ways, whatever, to laugh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Nanette was kind of 
intention to, to call it humorless is apparently to compliment it. So Nanette, humorless comedy. But so then what I noticed, um, I guess yesterday was when the article appeared was an article in the New York times dining section about uh, the TV show, contemporary TV show, which I have seen nearly all episodes of. Okay. Believe it or not. Uh, Kim's convenience. It's a Canadian sitcom. It's very much like an old school sitcom about family and a workplace and, you know, like that type of situation, right? Situation comedy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the situation. Um, And the twist, which is not really particularly a twist, is just that they are Korean and Korean-Canadian. That's their um, background, this family. So, okay, you know, like, it's, it's a really, really funny show. And it's also a really not particularly... Um, like it gets very, like the final season, which I have not yet gotten through because of this is a little bit like not so much preachy as just kind of like sappy because they're trying to close things up and it gets a little more serious and a little more like lesson-y in places. But the earlier seasons, it's just like an incredibly like silly show where people get into sort of like socially awkward situations and say things that are like, okay, so... An example from the, this is from the first episode. I think it's like the beginning of the first episode. And I, Mr. Kim and Mrs. Kim are the owners of a convenience store. And they have a then, I guess, like college age daughter who they're trying to um, set up with a nice Korean boy from their church. And two boys come like young men, you know, to be like suitors for her. And Mr. Kim is convinced that one of them is gay but he's like this christian boy who's like not out yet or whatever and um mr kim says to him we have a 15 percent gay discount only for this week oh no no no, i'm not i'm not gay it's okay sometimes gay take time Hmm? (laughs) and it's just like But the point is to say sometimes the gay takes time. It's very different from the shrill sketch, I'd say, right? It's not preachy. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it plays the it plays the implied homophobia for laughs and it and it works. It's like a different universe. And that's the universe of that show. But he's not trying to be like menacing to this person. He's just like calling calling it as he sees it Mm -hmm. in a sort of not quite Archie Bunker. I was going like to say, sort of, sounds yeah. like, um, you know, the most contemporary analog to All in the Family that you could it's, potentially it's get away not, with. It's not too far from All in the Family in spirit at all. That seems pretty, pretty true. And um, weird, because like, All in the Family, the opening intro, you know, with the opening credits, they show Queens and it looks exactly like Toronto. Interesting. Like, this is where I have to admit that while I understand All in the Family in this theoretical cultural context, I've never actually seen an episode because I had weird parents who were very restrictive about what sort of television I was allowed to watch. Mine were 
restrictive too, but this was this was on the list. This was <laughs> we watched a ton of it. Yeah, my our rules were so weird. Um, can I just tell you? I, so my mother's criteria for for what shows I was allowed to watch was that it had to be, it couldn't be below a certain intellectual bar. And I think that this really had more to do with the fact that she personally just hates sitcoms, and mm. I don't actually have really a taste for them either. Um, I I hate comedy. I hate to laugh. But um, the thing that so you must love Hannah Gadsby. <laughs> yes, yes. I, because if you laugh, you're shamed for it, and so I, mm-hmm. I feel like I've won. Um, no, but I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't actually hate comedy. I just don't gravitate towards it um, because of this weird childhood rule that made it so that I've never seen a single episode of Friends, for instance, because that was dumb per my mother's rule. But I have seen like every single episode of the X Files. <laughs> That is random. So, okay, so I have not ever seen The Simpsons for more than like a few minutes. And it was the same thing that I think my parents just thought it was stupid. But like, I have seen many a season of South Park. I would watch Cheers when I was like really young. And I I must have gotten more out of it when I was like eight than I have more recently. Because when I've watched it more recently, I, I didn't see the point. But um, yeah, I, I watched a lot of sitcoms and developed a taste for sitcoms. But but the reason I bring up Kim's Convenience is because the New York Times had a thing in the dining section about it. Why Kim's Convenience is, quote, quietly revolutionary. Um, in not explaining every detail of Korean food culture, the award-winning Canadian sitcom speaks volumes, okay? So it's just this article, it's a reported article interviewing um, Korean Americans and Korean Canadians about what a big it, it's that sort of like people told me my lunch smelled and now they sell my lunch line of thought now they eat my lunch i thought was the the real horror <laughs> or now they, well yeah but except instead of and now that there's somebody eat, or whatever doing something with my lunch um it's more like people said that my lunch smelled but now it's being treated as a non-event on television and it's like, when I read this, I thought, okay, and I should say skim this, whatever. But the point is, I thought, yeah, that's a fair point in terms of like noticing something in the culture. However, it gives the impression that this TV show is like a public service announcement um, to be nice to Korean people, <laughs> which it's like so far from what this show is. It's an incredibly funny. It, it, it just does such a disservice to the show and like this this just really got to me and it's like not a show particularly about food as the article says like people eat but it's like not about food here's what's here's what's interesting to me is that it sounds like the person who wrote this article which i i realize i'm committing a cardinal sin by kind of speculating about even though i haven't read it is trying to position a defense of Kim's convenience as if like, it's still worth your time, even though it does not appear outwardly to be woke enough to be worth your time, but it is because it's quietly revolutionary. Is that a fair? Maybe. Yeah. The quietly, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's acknowledging that it's a stretch in a couple ways, right? Like, but it seems a... like it's trying to say it doesn't seem like this but I promise it is this. I promise it's good, like morally, capital G, good. And so you I mean, can I still think enjoy it's something it. like that. I don't think it's a defense in that sense. I think it's more just like trying to shoehorn 
a show that's neither sort of politically correct nor about food <laughs> into a sort of take template in a food section. Well, I think what's interesting about that is that the, the people who like watching this show presumably are people who like it because it's not, you know, it doesn't make them think about the revolution. It's not preachy. It's not trying to push this very obvious agenda in the sense that that shrill clip was. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of like, undermining what many people probably find actively appealing about the show in this article, which I guess is aimed at an audience who they perceive to be very concerned with this and potentially, you know, rejecting the show on that basis. It just, yeah, it it really like something about it just, I found very frustrating because it just seemed like on the one hand, like it is a phenomenon that like it shows a change in the culture you know, that like to have a sort of ordinary, like, you know, largely working class, like, so that's the the family um, runs like a convenience store um, in a not very upscale part of Toronto. It's like, actually, it's a real store. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim's Convenience, it's just like a deli um, in Toronto. And then and like their son dropped out of school and works in a car rental place. And their daughter is a kind of like, um, so she she goes to art school and then is like kind of unemployed, underemployed, basement living millennial, mm-hmm. basically. And yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, I guess you could like, you can point to all these cultural things, but are you like, is that the essential of the show? Is that why the show is worthwhile? Is that like, it's just, I, I keep coming back to like, it's not doing justice to it. And I think it's going to repel potential viewers who are going to think this is a vegetable. I am being sold a vegetable to make me better, you know? It's good for you, right? And it's it's just, it's not what that type, it's not that type of show at all. And it's just so silly and like, and it's just like, it, and then it, I feel like there's a type of racism in that. And I, I do not believe the writer is white or Korean um, of the Times piece, but the point is, um, it's just, I do think there's a kind of, like, racism in the expectation that anybody um, who's producing anything um, who isn't a white man specifically, like, has to be, you know, it, it's a cause, you know? And, and like, I'm, like, not the first exactly to say this. I'm, like, the billionth to say this. And it's also the billionth time I've said it. But, like... The idea that Kim's convenience is like about like um, about Asian representation in that way, like it is, but it also is so much more. And to treat it like that's all it is makes it seem like it's an after-school special. Makes it seem like it's a public service announcement or a vegetable. And um, ah, it's not doing it's very it justice. Frustrating. Well, this is no. a thing that that came up a lot. Um, Amidst the obsession in, I'm just going to kind of do a deep cut into my my beat here, um, uh, the YA fiction scene, where they got obsessed with the idea of own voices, where it was, you know, mm-hmm. that you're going to write fiction about characters who share an identity, and marginalized identity that you have in common with them. And I did a piece for Refinery29 about this, um, talking to 
authors from marginalized backgrounds who basically said, you know, I'm being told by editors, I'm being told by agents that I need to write like black trauma or Latino trauma. Like I need to, you know, I need to show like damaged characters overcoming this, you know, this one, this one racist narrative, this one woke narrative um, that I have to subscribe to that. And maybe I don't want to do that. You know, maybe I don't, maybe I just want to entertain people or maybe I want fantasy or maybe I, I don't want to write about people who share my identity at all because that's not where my interests are centered. And there's this, this burden that creators from, you know, quote unquote, marginalized backgrounds are saddled with that as everybody else is disqualified from telling stories about these communities on the basis of identity. Only you are left right. to tell stories, to tell the stories of your people. And they all have to be stories of pain and anguish mm-hmm. and harm and oppression. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's exactly it. I think you have nailed exactly why I found that New York Times coverage so annoying because like, ah, it's not a show about and like even even though there are the caveats in the article about how it's not a show about food, it's it's subtly doing this. It's not that's not the point of it. And it's just saying it's about like really the impact the show has had, not the show itself. I don't know. I just don't buy it. I think it's like it's it's basically saying if you're an underrepresented minority, well, you know, <laughs> you can literally only make public service announcements and you can make great art and it will just be received as a public service announcement. I will say, though, so like speaking of Kim's and Kimmy's, can we transition to? Yeah, we absolutely this? can. Because um, so the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I think, has, has been broken. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think it's a, a show in a very similar spirit, sort of um, its sensibility is really similar to Kim's Convenience in that it's also a sitcom. It also is a show where like you virtually never see a white man. Um, the cast is a lot of um, sort of middle-aged or sort of pushing out of middle-aged women. One black man... I think that's about it. Um, And then occasionally like people's dates or something, but it's extremely like to the point of like almost anti-woke, I guess. Cause like there's a, a scene, the kimono. Have you watched the show? Uh, I've seen, I think the first season of it um, and maybe part of the second, but I don't think I've seen it all the way through. Did you see the kimono? Like where, um, where Titus, um, Kimmy Schmidt's roommate, who's a black gay man, he does some kind of performance where he's a like a geisha, and it's problematic, and and that's the point like of the episode. So he is like he's probably like one of the funniest sitcom characters ever. Um, so I, I'm glad at least that he wasn't. Canceled. Isn't his name Titus Andronicus in the show? Yes. Yeah. So he's great, but yeah. So Ellie Kemper though is. She plays Kimmy Schmidt on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is a show co-created by Tina Fey, which I think um, I will say why I think is relevant. But um, but Kat, you wrote a really great piece about this um, in The Spectator called Ellie Kemper and Twitter's Two Minutes Hate. Do tell. Yes. Okay. So this week in Twitter's trending sidebar, Ellie Kemper's name appeared. If you spend any time on Twitter, you'll know that people's names tend not to appear in the sidebar unless they are either dead or have been 
found out as racists. So um, in this case, if you clicked through, what you would find is a collection of tweets saying that they were shocked, people saying they were shocked to discover that L.A. Kemper was a, quote, KKK, that's Ku Klux Klan, princess. She had been crowned a KKK princess at this at this ball called the Veiled Prophets Ball. Which is different in St. from Louis. a Jewish American princess. Yes, a, a different thing. Um, okay, so I almost I almost don't want to even explain what actually happened here that that created this misimpression because, like the the false allegation of the KKK princess thing is so bonkers that it's almost not worth explaining the truth. Um, but I'll try to give the truncated version. Ellie Kemper is from a wealthy family in St. Louis, Missouri. And as a teen, she participated in the cultural traditions of the social class and region into which she was born. And if you are a Southern belle, that basically means debutante balls. Um, well, can I just, I have to interrupt with something because there was a tweet where somebody said, a lot of people forget that Ellie Kemper is from a really rich family or something. And I want to be like, must everybody be like continuously remembering? <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, it was, it's unethical. Forget. It's unethical to be a, a, from a wealthy family and working or in like Hollywood. she's hiding, like she's surely doing something involved to hide this fact. This famous Princeton graduate is clearly doing something to hide that fact about her life and it's like as versus that she's like a not obscure but like not an actress who people are generally talking about she's just kind of like a sitcom actress who's in this and that here and there but not like super super famous and the fact that somebody might have for a second had a thought that wasn't gee i wonder about ellie kemper's art (laughs) anyway Mm-hmm. So she was a debutante. Yeah, she was a debutante. Now, you know, I'm from the Northeast. Um, this was not a part of my life growing up. But I, you weren't a debutante? I was not. But I have friends who grew up in the South um, who, you know, attended these things as debutantes. They call it coming out. It's just like it's being presented to society, basically. And, uh, you know, this is an Old South tradition. Um, and also, this exists in the in the North, I believe, as well. So... Um, I was not in that world, but I did know people who went to like, oh, I think it was like called dancing school or something where they like, (laughs) they went to some kind of like social dance class. And it was like, those were like the old money slash more aspiring (laughs) slash had more money than whatever my own family. I don't know what it was, but they had to, I think, wear white gloves and learn how to dance. And I think they must have had a debutante ball at the end of it, but I switched to public school, so I never found oh. out. Well, so here's the thing. I think that, you know, every in every region going back, you have wealthy people, you know, creating these institutions and these traditions that help cement their status and allow them to mingle with each other and marry their children off to each other and so on and so forth. This is not unique to the South. But when you get into the South, there is this element sometimes because of the cultural influences in that region where things get kind of kooky and costumey and, and a little more over the top um, in the same way that Mardi Gras, you know, is is an old tradition in the South. And that's freaking insane like if you you look at that having grown up in upstate new york as i did and you're like what are these people doing it looks like fun but it also looks completely crazy so basically i think that 
these Southern traditions tend to come off as peculiar and maybe a little sinister just because they're in the South and the South was racist. Um, it's a facile way to talk about it, but I think that's the association people are making. Well, um, the hoods also very literally, right? Wasn't it that like in the 19th century? The veiled prophet wears a hood. Um, I want to be, okay, so I want to be super clear on this. The KKK and the Veiled Prophet Ball have no association with each other. But somebody tweeted that they do, so it must be the same thing. No, they, they don't. Know, are you tone policing random tweets? <laughs> I am. I am tone policing them. I'm actually policing them. I have called the police. They are all going to jail. But it's not your job to educate. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the police's job to educate. I think what you're saying here is that there need to be more police extra funds the police specifically to just go around giving explainers <laughs> like a vo- more police and more masked profits. I actually want I want the police to wear colorful masks like in Watchmen. Um, and yeah, this is this is where I'm going. Um, but no. OK, so the, the just to be clear, a lot of people have posted a picture of um, an old illustration of the masked prophet at its inception and he's wearing a costume that if you're not familiar with the norms of the time um, or the history of the kkk for that matter it might register as looking like something that a member of the kkk would wear however they're not associated and the kkk did not adopt its conical head scarf thing um, you know that we commonly associate with it until well after the veiled prophet ball had been a thing they're just they're just not they're not connected right but it does seem so it seems to have been an all-white social club though until the 1970s yes so the this ball has the same racist history as virtually any institution or tradition that you could point to that was created in the 1800s before civil rights were taken especially seriously in a widespread way. Um, you know, the, the institutions that wealthy white people have created to further their interests, t- they tend to have a certain amount of racism baked in. So that's true of this. It's also true of lots of other places. Right. I mean, I think I think you can say that like, as totally separate topics that for an institution to wait until what was it like the late seventies or something to integrate is late. And that it, and moreover that it got criticism at the time as a racist institution. This is a separate question than what was happening in 1999 with Ellie Kemper debutante of the year or whatever. Yeah. By this time, by this time, the ball had been, you know, it was, it was welcoming black members and black debutantes. Which seems so relevant. And like, oh, that was not in the, like, I Googled it. I was trying to figure this out. And people like I tweeted, I was like, is this in 1999? What was it? You know? And I tried to ask in different ways. And I got these replies that were like, what do you think? And the just showed like five, white people in like the 1950s or something I'd be like yeah so I I spent some time um going through image galleries on St. Louis today or whatever it was um from this party and what I've concluded is that it's still you know it's majority white um of course the U.S. is also still majority white and as you get into like upper class echelons it's even whiter but there is a 
I would say a normal amount, the expected amount of representation um, of people of color in the crowd, in the, you know, in the membership, in the collections of ladies who are being honored at these things. There's like a whole court system that I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I'll explain (laughs) it to you having spent like maybe half a week of my life in the South. I I married a Southerner, but I still don't really understand this Um, shit. Um, But, you know, (laughs) as much as I don't understand, you know, what was happening at the Veiled Prophets Ball, the people who resurfaced this image of Ellie Kemper being awarded the Queen and a Queen of Love and Beauty Award at the Veiled Prophets Ball, understand it even less than I do. Well, so I thought that what was great, sorry, what was great in your piece, what you're talking about is like the whole sort of trending topics on Twitter thing where like, this is not actually a Yeah, this is what I'm getting to is Twitter idiots are going to do what they do. But Twitter decided to collect every tweet Mm -hmm. calling Ellie Kemper a KKK princess, which, you know, at the time there were not that many of them. So somebody, somebody noticed this happening and decided to do this. They curated them. They made them into a moment. They put it in the sidebar. They promoted it to make sure that everybody who visited the site would see it. They made it into a story. And this is the thing that I wrote about, you know, for the spectator that that frustrates me. It's that Twitter in many cases uses its sidebar feature to amplify what are essentially insane smear campaigns against random people even though Ellie Kemper is a celebrity she's still a person she's a blameless woman she you know calling her a KKK princess is a fucked up and horrible thing to do and then it becomes has she weighed in on it which she shouldn't have to and I hope she doesn't it's so ridiculous yeah but then the question so the question I had was then so like the trending topics thing is creepy and the more you think about it the more upsetting it is and the idea of like these stories just like anything can be kind of whipped up and it's horrible because it it just basically sounds like all that's been discovered was that this, you know, 40 something actress from a wealthy family is a 40 something actress from a wealthy family, which we all knew. Um, But also like I was trying to, so what I looked up in my not so extensive research for this podcast, I'm afraid was just like, is she in something now? Is there any reason she's in the news? And I couldn't find anything. It doesn't seem, it seems like she's a working actress, but not, you know, like on billboards or something. And this show, you know, um, that she was the star of was like on a few years ago. I don't know. It's It's been it's ended. Yeah. Um, done for a while. The only thing I could think about is the Tina Fey angle, because she is still quite active and quite on the scene and just like a much, much bigger name um, than Ellie Kemper. And Tina Fey... Like there was literally like last month in Slate, although they changed the headline, but I screenshotted it somewhere, um, some headline about like Tina Fey redeeming herself from her problematicness. And it, it said some, it had like problematic was in either the headline or the subhead. Yes. Right? Oh, so, she's got this new show out now. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's seen supposedly as a, well, I mean, I guess by certain types of people, the same type of people who wrote that article in the New York Times about Kim's convenience as being some kind of mea culpa for, you know, for not being socially conscious enough when she did 30 Rock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. So 30 Rock, she was this kind of like lean in girl boss feminist who also, and like she committed a lot of like, as Liz Lemon committed 
numerous crimes, such as the character was supposed to be sort of fat, even though the actress clearly is not fat. Although on the show, she's always next to Suri, who's like, who looks, you know, like a model, which Tina Fey does not. And I'm saying this as somebody who was once literally confused for Tina Fey, as in like somebody thought I was Tina Fey, like that's how much I look like her. Um, or did at that point, I don't know if that's still the case, but, um, yeah, like, I don't know. So maybe I feel a little like of a personal defensiveness of Tina Fey. Well, I I don't find it hard to believe that a woman who looks like Tina Fey could be like sort of treated as schlumpy by the Alec Baldwin, um, character whose name I'm forgetting. But, um, but yeah, so my theory, my conspiracy theory here is that this is all about Tina Fey on some level because she uh, was behind um, Kimmy Schmidt and Kimmy Schmidt was considered problematic, right? Another sin. And even though Tina Fey's big sin was um, 30 Rock for reasons I don't remember. So somebody somebody wanted to take down Ellie Kemper because she was like a proxy for Tina Fey. I think so. I think so because I can't for the life of me understand why else anyone would care. She is not a very famous person. She's not like, she's not like a 20 year old influencer. She's just, I don't know, she's, yeah, just like a working actress in her forties. Like, I don't know what, what the issue, why anyone would care. Like if she is canceled, it's, it's not like with, like I'm thinking of somebody like with lo and behold, I'm going to bring her up again. Alison Roman cancel Alison Roman at her peak is like, that's like an act that changes the culture. I don't think anybody was thinking about like Ellie Kemper's. So I'm going to proffer two potential alternate theories. Okay. (laughs) All right. My first theory is it's the year of COVID and maybe somebody was home, you know, finishing watching Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. And, you know, there was some, they went to Ellie Kemper's Wikipedia page or whatever. And, (laughs) And oh, this is plausible. This, actually, you know, yeah. they they just they stumbled across this information, and it ignited a you know sort of a casual malice that proliferates easily online. It finds an easy outlet on Twitter, and then and this is you know this is what's key. Um, Twitter, for whatever reason, I mean, well, not for whatever reason. It's because they they do this because they know that it keeps people that drives engagement to the site. Um, decided to amplify it and turn it into a news story, which of course it became. Um, that's, that's my first theory. But my second theory, which I like even better, is that this story was created by the Chinese in a laboratory. <laughs> okay. I, I, no, I don't think that that's right because clearly this story came directly from a pangolin. Oh, yeah. Or was it a bat? That is never, we're never going to solve that. No, I, I don't think we should even try. Yeah. Is that a good, a good place to end? I think so. I think, I think that may be where we have to wrap up. What leaked this? Was it a pangolin or a bat? Was it somebody who spent too much time in the pandemic IMDB Wikipedia sinkhole? Or was it a bioweapon created by the Chinese to foment terror on the United States internet? I guess we'll never know. That's Um, right. Well, find out next time on Feminine Chaos.
Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, you should feel free to also subscribe on Patreon for exclusive content uh, for $5 a month. You get two, at least, usually two, um, exclusive bonus episodes per month, plus early access to our public episodes before they post. That's right. Um, and for what is it? $10. There's a newsletter. And for $20, you can get your name shouted out. Yeah. We'll say your name, you know, mm -hmm. maybe even in a funny voice. I don't know. It's happened. It could happen. <laughs> and uh, with that, this has been Feminine Chaos. That it has. Bye. Bye.